God can do it, we can help. And uh, the whole premise is, is that our, our families need God's help. Our relationships within them uh, are, are subject to God's grace uh, or, or need of God's grace. And so uh, we're, we're talking about how we can respond to what God teaches us in his word and bring that grace more readily to the relationships that we find in our homes. Uh, we understood from last week that uh, family was God's idea. He created Adam, then he created Eve. He said, go forth and multiply. Uh, it was his building block, how he was going to create uh, the, the human race. It was going to be built on families. But uh, as uh, we soon find out in the Bible, uh, sin comes in and makes every home a fixer-upper. We talked about that last week. It'll show up right here on the slides in just a second as I say it for the second time. It's sin makes every home a fixer-upper. Yeah. Uh, it, it just kind of makes a mess of things. It's like, uh, it's like this wrecking ball. You know, it came in like a wrecking ball. Miley Cyrus, I just thought we'd throw her in there. Anyway, uh, I, I, I love demo uh, at my house when we were fixing it up. I, I tore it up pretty good, uh, ripped walls out, like every wall in my house. Uh, I was up uh, just recently at, uh, in Thanos Sass, and my wife's found a 1954 Spartan mansion trailer that she wants on our property. It just happens to be attached to a home that was built around it. And uh, so in order for us to even to tow this thing to my house, I have to rip a house down to get it out from underneath the roof. It's a, anyway, long story. But uh, I was up there with uh, Osha, my buddy, and we were ripping the walls out and not paying much attention to, you know, what was happening as I was ripping uh, drywall and insulation and studs and we're zazzling all these things. And, uh, and then I looked down. I was up on my ladder and I looked down and there was an incredible amount of debris uh, where I had been ripping, right? It made sense to me that uh, when we start ripping at the fabric of what God has intended, when sin starts shredding all that he had hoped for us, it just leaves a mess. And sin's done that in your life, and it's done that in mine, it's done that in your relationships, in your, your marriages, and your uh, relationships with your kids, if your parents, and your relationship with your parents, if your kids... Uh, it just, it's a wedge, and it just comes in there and makes a mess of things. Uh, we took a, away some solace last week, though, in the fact that Jesus is the restorer of all things. That's our hope from Scripture, is that Jesus is the restorer of all things, not just the souls of mankind, but he's the restorer of the relationships of mankind. He can fix up families, and uh, his, his desire is to do so. That's why we're talking about this stuff uh, this week. And so we took uh, together a, a look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, or the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, begun. It lasts for Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And, uh, and we, we looked especially at this section of Scripture, the first 10 verses or so, 11 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, they're called the Beatitudes. Beatus is a Latin word meaning blessed or blessing, and it, it basically is how every one of the verses that Jesus uh, preaches at his Sermon on the Mount starts in these first 10 or 11 verses. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And, and what we're doing in this series, if you haven't picked it up yet, is we're trying to figure out how this blessed life, this approved life that God has set out for us can make a difference in our relationships and our homes. If we embody and become these blessings, it's going to change how we live with our families. We, uh, we understood from these blessings basically is that uh, Jesus is the restorer of all things, including our families. But if Jesus is going to restore our families, he needs to restore us first. This is not a message, or these series of messages are not messages for you to go and tell your spouse or your kids, Mark said this, do it. No, this is a mirror series. This is you looking in the mirror and saying, all right, this is for me. 
These are the things that I need to change. Uh, Since the first family, members of families have not been able to change members of families. You can't change your husband, ladies. God can. You can't change your kids, parents. God can. You can't change your parents' kids. You can't change your brothers and sisters. God can. But guess who you can be a part of changing? You. And God wants to do that. He wants to restore us first, and that's what these verses are going to teach us. We uh, read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. Hey, Sermon on the Mount. That might be where they got it. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he said these things, uh, and taught them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that last week. I'll hit it again briefly today. Secondly, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We're actually going to get to that one this week, even though I didn't have time last. And then we're going to tackle this one today too. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We learned these verses together last week. We're going to learn them again. Everybody stand up. Let's do some verse aerobics. Here we go. Does anybody remember what the sign for blessed is? What is it? It's the thumbs up. We know that this word, this Greek word in the, in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed, is the Greek word makarioi, and it basically means approved of. Put your thumbs up one more time. The verse starts like this. Blessed are the, anybody remember what we did for poor? We made a zero, because poor means empty, nothing in there, impoverished, uh, beggarly. Blessed are the in, who remembers spirit? Yeah, make your doves, here we go. (laughs) One more time. Are the in, for theirs is the, yeah, make your crowns, there it is, kingdom of Heaven. All right, cool. One more time for that one. We'll move on. Blessed are the in, for theirs is the of. Good. And what was the second one? Are those who. Everybody remember this? This was the participatory one. For they shall be. Give someone a hug next to you. They shall be comforted. Make sure you ask first. They don't know you. That's just awkward all around. If you see someone doing this, they don't want to be hugged by you. That's <laughs> How is, How's it go again, the second one? Blessed are those who, for they shall be, from the beginning, first one. Blessed are the in, for theirs is the of, and then blessed are the, are those who, <laughs> for they shall be. Okay, new one, you ready? Verse five, are the, okay, and this is gonna, I'm gonna have to explain this later, but make a muscle, and then after you. Is everybody ready? Blessed are the meek. One more time, blessed are the meek. We're gonna talk about uh, meekness being the weak strong. I'll explain it when we get there, just trust me, okay? But blessed are the meek, for they shall, and everybody do this, inherit, and then, Deep knee bend, earth, and inherit the earth, all right? Yeah, have fun with it, Jimmy. Have fun with it. I see you over there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. (laughs) From the top, you got these? Here we go. What's the first one? Blessed are the in, for theirs is the of, and then... Are those who, for they shall be 
And then lastly, are the, for they shall, the earth. Yes, have a seat. You guys are great at that. All right. You're going to be walking up to each other in publics and you're going to be like. That'll be great. People will be like, oh, they go to that church. Anyway, it'll be great. We talked last week about the first one. We answered this question, what must I do to be restored by Jesus? And, and, and the, the Beatitudes are the answers to, the, to that question, every one of them. Uh, I'm going to be approved by God uh, if I choose to understand that I'm poor in spirit. I'm poor in spirit. I'm empty. I got nothing. When it comes to the, the spiritual relationship that I've brokered with God, I brought zero. God did it all. And what that should do to us, it should leave us in this perpetual state of humility, of gratitude, of living life differently. It, we should never become uh, self-sufficient in our faith, because we're just not. That's not how faith works. Faith in Christ, faith in God, uh, subsists on, consists of the constant understanding, the constant uh, admission that I got nothing. I can't do this. God, you got to do it for me where salvation begins. If you're wondering if you're a Christian, if you've never gotten to the point where you realized you can't save yourself, that it's not Jesus plus your works in some form or fashion, if you've never gotten to the point where you just humbly surrender yourself to the mercies and graces of God and just say, you gotta do this, you're not saved. You might be churchy. You, you might be a church attender or even a member or maybe an elder, hope not. But if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone to save you from your sins, if you haven't realized that apart from that, uh, you got nothing and you can do nothing, then you're not Christian. It's where it begins. But then it, we talked about it's not just salvation, it's sanctification. It's where everything else in life finds its beginning as well. If, if you're gonna be more like Jesus, guess what you gotta do? You gotta realize I can't be more like Jesus on my own strength. I've gotta allow Jesus to work through me. It's, it's a great one, go back if you weren't here last week. Uh, hear more about it, but that's what it means when it says, what must I do to be Jesus? I gotta admit that my, uh, I got limitations. I'm zero, and I gotta accept God's help. That's what it means to be uh, when it says there, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse three, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this last week, and I'll just mention it again briefly. People who get low and stay low, they're the ones who receive the kingdom. And we talked about the fact that there's this already not yet promise uh, in almost all the promises uh, of scripture, that there's this not yet portion to it, that there's a future fulfillment of this, uh, you know, inheriting the kingdom of heaven, because we're going to go to heaven. We're going to be in the presence of God. Um, we're we're going to sing the songs, like it uh, tells us in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, uh, who was and is and is to come. Some of you think, oh, that's going to be boring. I hope there's a mall up there. I'd like to go shopping sometime. Maybe a golf course, fishing. Everybody's picture of heaven is whatever their favorite thing here on earth is. They want to do a lot of that up there. But here's what I'm saying, uh, and this is kind of a sermon sidebar. Uh, someone talked about it at a conference I was at this week. Can everybody just understand for a second the amazing awesomeness of God? I mean, you can try to understand, but just so you know, you're not even scratching the surface. You're not even come close. And so if you get in his presence and you exist eternally in his presence, I'm, I'm just guessing all you're going to be able to do is like, whoa! The whole time. 
And like after the first few days of eternity, you're gonna start fashioning that into words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Of course they're singing. You're gonna be so amazed, you're gonna forget all about them all. Back to the sermon. That's the future manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. But we talked last week about how uh, Jesus taught us to pray that his uh, will would be done, uh, uh, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. He, He wants you to experience a taste of heaven, a touch of heaven. And it begins with us admitting, I got nothing. I'm empty. Jesus, in John 15, talks about, I am the vine. You're the branches. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, uh, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, hey, you got nothing. If you want to experience the heavenly blessings that can come into a family, you get low and you stay low. And you ask God to do what you can't in loving those that he's entrusted to you in your home. The next two I'm gonna try to get through in this sermon. We'll see what happens. Because they're both exciting. I mean, every one of these is uh, many sermons uh, uh, worth of material. But uh, in answering this question, what must I do to, to be restored you can skip down to the, the next one. Uh, I must identify and confess and mourn my sin. I must identify, confess, and then mourn my sin. Uh, the, the world in which we live in, uh, it, it's not a big fan of, of looking in the mirror and being honest about what's really going on in our lives. Uh, we like to point fingers. In fact, I would bet this. Uh, if you're in your family, you know exactly what your spouse's sins are because they adversely affect you and you want them to stop. You know exactly what your kid's problems are. I know what that kid's problem is. You could detail it, bullet form. But if you look in the mirror, I bet you'd be hard pressed to know exactly what your problem is. In fact, you might want to ask your spouse. (laughs) They could probably tell you. (laughs) But we don't like dealing with our sin. It says there in uh, verse four of Matthew chapter five, Blessed are those who mourn. In the context, it's talking about this, this, this emptiness of verse three, that I'm poor in spirit, that I'm, I'm, I'm lost without Jesus. And, 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 then, and then he moves forward into verse four and he says, well, blessed are those of you who mourn, who emotionally connect with your lostness, who are ever aware, like, like uh, uh, you know, David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. My sin is always before me, Right? It's a paradox here. It says, blessed, another way of uh, translating blessed there is instead of just approved, it could be happy. And so it says basically in the line here, happy are those who mourn. That's a paradox, right? Everybody knows what a paradox is, right? It's those old Doc Martin boots that you used to wear in the 90s. You get a pair of those, paradox. That's that's terrible. I said I wouldn't say it again. I said it last night. It's still not funny. But a paradox is basically contrary things both existing at the same time. Like the Bible says this about us, the last shall be first. Paradox. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing is finding. The least is the greatest. The poor are the rich. This is my favorite one. Weakness is strength. Serving is ruling. I could go on, but the Bible's full of these paradoxical statements. 
What does it mean when it says here that God approves of mourning and mourning specifically for our sin? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you kind of walk around in in life as a Christian with grim sadness. I grew up in angry Baptist churches, um, and most of the times when I went to church, I just wanted to go home because I was reminded in most of the sermons that I heard, that at least that I remember, I'll confess, I didn't listen to a lot of them, (laughs) But, uh, but the ones I heard, they were pretty heavy on sin and the penalty of sin and, and, and the outrage of sin. And I don't remember us smiling a whole lot. We'd play just as I am at the end of the service and everybody kind of just like, oh, it's over. Get to go home. I'd run home and watch the wrestling uh, that came on at my house right after church. That was kind of my pick-me-up. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> but I remember going to my church and the overemphasis, especially if you grew up in a legalistic culture, the overemphasis on behaviorism and and making sure that you do the right things. Like, like uh, if people know that you're a Christian and the most that they know about your Christianity is that you can't do a bunch of stuff, well, then you've maybe not communicated this Christ life effectively. Because that's what I grew up believing the Christ life was, is a bunch of don'ts. And let's be fair, there's lots of things, standards that God calls us to in the scripture. We should keep them out of gratitude for his saving grace to us. Absolutely, I'm not saying that we just blow the door out on you know, the rules or the laws of God, but I am saying that it's way cooler that God saved us at all. It's, it's more amazing that he loved us enough to have Jesus die for us than it is for us to emphasize all the rules. These aren't the got-tos, these are the get-tos, the things that we get to do in response to the love of Christ. Uh, this whole mourning for sin isn't living life in grim sadness. Smile, Christians. It's a good thing that you're saved by grace. It's also, uh, it doesn't mean, or this mourning thing doesn't mean that we despair over the broken things in life, that we're just constantly um, being brought back to the sins of our life. I, I, I talk with people sometimes who have just a hard time letting go of their past, and I try to remind them, hey, you know, God has. God's over it. Like, like when you confess that sin and when he forgave that sin, it went as far as the east is from the west. It's done for him. Like you keep bringing it up to him and he's like, what are you talking about? But I, I've, I've moved on. I'd love for you to move on too. Sometimes this, this verse gets interpreted as us being you know, sad and grim and mm, Christianity, Yay. But sometimes it gets interpreted as us never letting go of our sin. And we live in the defeat that we've been freed from through our faith in Jesus Christ. We're like uh, Christian versions of Eeyore. It's my birthday. We're Debbie Downer. We assume the worst in every situation. We just, like, uh, you know, we have a family member, Eleanor and I were talking last night. We have a family member who just has a hard time accepting the love of Christ in her life. And it's tied directly to the things uh, that she's done that offend him. I'm certainly not saying, in fact, I'm going to teach the exact opposite here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be sorry for our sins and we shouldn't learn from our sins. The only true mistakes are the ones we learn nothing from, right? I'm not, what I am saying, though, is we shouldn't dwell. We shouldn't be held back by the mistakes of our past, our present, or even the ones we're going to make in the future. Now, being mournful for our sin means having a, a right understanding 
of, of, of what we've done, of who we are without Christ, uh, appreciating who we are with Christ, right? And then, <clears throat> with mourning, we have this whole emotional side of our spirituality. What does it tell us uh, that Jesus said uh, about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with what? With all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, right? We usually are, are good in the American Christianity that we uh, exist in, at loving him with our heads, because we study the Bible and go to life group and learn the book and all that stuff. A lot of times we're great with our strength. We'll serve him, we'll, we'll go and you know, feed the bay and we'll serve here at church somewhere. And, but but a lot, sometimes we're not really great at loving Jesus with our hearts. We don't allow our emotions to, to get to where they need to as in response to the things that Jesus has done for us or in response to the things that we've done against him. And that's where this verse is really going. It's telling us to mourn, to emotionally connect with the fact that God has saved us from our sin. And that sin is a crusher. It's a destroyer of my life and my family's. Let me read you some verses in Romans. Uh, I'm gonna keep going, yeah. What then? This is what it says. Uh, Romans, by the way, we'll study it someday. Would you like to preach? Let's, let's preach Romans some five years. It'll take a while. But, uh, but it's this, this incredibly thick and awesome uh, uh, argument that Paul gives to the Christians in Romans about why they need a Savior, how Jesus is their Savior. He spends the first three chapters basically establishing the fact that we're all crud. Now, some of the Jews in the, in the congregation in, his, in, in this Roman church were thinking, well, we're not crud because we're the sons of Abraham. We're, we're the good guys. The Gentiles, now they are crud. But us Jews, thumbs up, we're approved. And this is what Paul says in response to that idea. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? Nope, not at all. For we have already charged that all, and now he's gonna take the Jews to their Hebrew scriptures, all the scriptures that these guys had been taught from, you know, from an early age to know and understand. He says, well, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, here comes the Hebrew scriptures, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, nor does anyone seek for God. He goes on and he says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's another quote from the Old Testament. Their throat is an open grave. He's gonna talk about their words. It's not just the condition of man's hearts, it's, it's the things that they say. The, the, their throats are not grave. grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. The, the venom of asps, gotta say that one right, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He says, you guys, you're, you're internally sinful and wicked. You're externally with your words, sinful and wicked. Let's talk about your actions. He goes on, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. In your actions, you're constantly committing offenses to God. And then he just goes to the overall package and he quotes this. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's described all of humanity. What's he said? None righteous. Nope, not one. Jews, Greeks, male, female, slave, free. Everybody's a hot mess out there. Now here's what happens usually when a preacher preaches this. You'll sit there and you'll nod your head. Yep, intellectually, I totally agree with that. That is so true. And I've seen it. Let me point up and down the aisles here. I've seen the sin and that one and that one and that one and that one. Pastor, you are right. And we stop there. It's this mental ascent. Yep, that's true. What it should do when we read those verses 
is it should emotionally connect with us. It should be this visceral reaction, this, this heartfelt response to sin. And, and what it should be is, is outrage, sorrow, mourning, disappointment over our failures and the failures of our families, but then outrage. This has got to stop. With God's help, I want to remove the sinful patterns of my life for his glory and for the sake of my relationships. That, that, that's how things work. Everybody knows that about life, right? You can think lots of things, but it's not until you feel things that you do things. Feelings are fuelings. What we feel fuels what we do. Don't believe me? Anybody here had dessert this past week? Just so you know, none of you needs dessert. There's no human in the world that needs strawberry shortcake. You can live off of all the other good for you stuff. Why then do we have dessert? Because it tastes good and it makes us feel good. And you'll eat dessert even if you're full. Like you'll have eaten the whole turkey at Thanksgiving and someone will bring out that pumpkin pie and you'll be like, well, I can probably find room, I don't know. Why do you do that? Because you know it's a good thing? Because you, you, you have this need for it? No, you do it because, man, this feels great. That's what I want to do. That's why they call them crimes of passion. It's because people do what they feel. They turn their brains off and let their feelings rule. You know, that can be... Uh, uh, something that leads to really great things too, though. Like if you see injustice long enough, and in your mind you know it's wrong, Rosa Parks. I mean, that they make me sit at the back of the bus is just wrong. I don't know what made Rosa Parks that one day, not sit in the back of the bus, but we all heard about it. You know what led her to do it? I'm not doing this anymore. I, I, I go to grocery stores, and I take carts that are uh, left in the parking lot, up to the grocery store. Didn't always do that. But you know what? I used to get out of my truck every day that I was you know, at a grocery store, and I'd look around at what the lazy Americans, all of us lazy Americans do. We unload our buggies, and then we leave them in the parking spots next to us so that I can't park my truck there anymore. Makes me crazy. And time after time, I got out of my truck, and I said, this ought not to be. Now, I can't go from car to car in a public parking lot and yell at folks. But you know what I can start doing? I can start pushing a buggy myself. I can make every one of my kids who's in my car push one too. And one quart at a time. <laughs> We're gonna rid America of the laziness of shopping cart leaving. Because here's the deal, listen, you can know something but until you feel something, you don't do anything about it. And that's why this verse is in your Bibles. Because you can know that you're sinful. Unless you feel the weight of that sin, unless you feel remorse over that sin, unless you feel outraged by the fact that that sin continues in your life and continues to wreck the relationships in your life, you're not going to do anything about it. Jesus is begging us, please mourn. Because there's so there's a life that's so much better on the other side of you taking seriously your sin. It tells us in Psalms, chapter 119, 
Uh, David writing here, in the midst of the longest chapter in your Bible, Psalm 119 is a hundred and something million verses long. And uh, it's, a, it's a verse that basically extols the greatness of God's word. But in the midst of God's word, this is what David, or, or his midst of his run of, of, of extolling the greatness of God's word. Here's what David says. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears. Not just one. Not the Indian on the, you know, the pollution commercial and the, you know, the Indian. He just, he weeps, streams of tears because people don't keep your laws. They, they sin. Sin breaks my heart, God. Remember what Jesus did? He's coming into town on the day of his triumphal entry. We just talked about it here around the Easter series. And, and he's coming into town on the back of this donkey, according to the prophet's you know, uh, story of his entry. And, and he draws near to the city, it tells us in Luke, and, and he sees it and he stops. He's in the middle of a parade. People are warming up their palm branches, taking off their coats. I mean, this is the party of parties. The king has come. And he stops his parade as he's coming down the Mount of Olives and he says, hold up, everyone. I don't know if you stayed on the donkey or if he steps off, but he just stands there. And he just looks at the city. I picture him shaking his head. And then I picture the tear, the first one hitting his cheeks. And then I picture him with agony weeping over what stands before on the city of Jerusalem. This is what he says. He says, would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. What's he, what's he crying over? The power of sin has turned the people of God from God himself. They don't recognize their Messiah. It says now these things are hidden from your eyes and it breaks the heart of our God. The Son of God weeps over Jerusalem. Do you weep over your sin? you weep over the fact that your sin and the sins of those in your family hold your family back from God's very best? There's only two things worse than sin itself. If you wanted to put it this way, some of you grew up in Catholic church and you kind of ranked your sins. This was venial, this was mortal, this was whatever. You wanna, you wanna, I don't think the sins are ranked. That's another series or another sermon for another day. But if you had me pin down what I think the worst sins are, uh, it's the denial of sin. Just saying, I don't, I'm not a sinner. I, that's not my fault. It's, it's my wife's fault. And then a, a close second to that is the refusal to deal with sin. So if you get past denial, then you'll admit, well, yeah, I got a problem. But I'm not going to do anything about it. Those are the two biggest sins to me, refusing to see it and refusing to deal with it. And this is what happens in the lives of people who have relationships with God and others, which is all of us, is we're great. Like I said earlier, we're authorities on the sins of the others in our homes, but we're just lousy at admitting ours and then dealing with them. Uh, what I would love to do is create a, uh, a new device called the Me Phone. Uh, it wouldn't be a telephone or a texting phone. It would just be a camera phone. I guess it's just a camera at that point, but anyway. <laughs> And what I would love from the me phone is uh, that every time you get in an argument with your spouse or with your kids or you're, you're starting to uh, you know, uh, move in the same ways that you've always moved, sinful ways and, and handling the stuff of your home, uh, I would love for your uh, arm to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You yank the me phone out of your pocket, you put it in front of your face, and you take the selfie. And then you look at the selfie picture, which all of us do. You know, oh, We're not putting that on Facebook. I got a double chin. You know, uh, you look at your picture, and instead of your, your visage or your, your, 
you know, your image and, and it's, you know, looking good or not. All you see is a list of the things that are sinful in you that you're about to unleash in this encounter with this loved one. And somehow the Holy Spirit confronts you with those truths and before you open your mouth and make the same stupid mistakes that you've made in countless encounters like this before, you pause and you say, hold it. This makes me mad. This breaks my heart. I should not be this way. Fellas especially, listen, quit blaming your dad. It's just my dad was this way, I'm this way. Quit saying, you know, it's, it's the other person's fault. Own your stuff. Allow God to convict you of your sin and then deal with it so that you can move forward in life and honor him with those that he's entrusted to you. You can't fix them, but with God's help, you can deal with you. People who mourn, just so you know, here's the promise of, of this blessing. People who mourn are comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, say it with me, comforted. There's good things that come from allowing God to convict you of sin. There's peace that awaits you when you honestly deal with the stuff that you're bringing to the mess. I didn't have a great relationship with my father. I've talked about him to you before in the last 12 or 13 years that I've been with you. Uh, he's been uh, gone with Jesus for the past five years. I just celebrated, I don't know, celebrate's not the right word, but we remembered uh, his passing just a couple weeks ago. Um, dad was my dad for 42 years. I had to do the math, that hurt. Um, and for a lot of them, uh, I'll just say it, for all of them, I, di I didn't really know the guy. Dad was a workaholic. Uh, Dad had some, uh, some demons, some, some stuff in his, his life that uh, kept him from really, at least with me, developing uh, a father-son relationship that I hope to have with my boys. Um, we just didn't talk. We didn't hang out. It wasn't combative or abusive. I know many of you are you know, uh, from those kinds of homes. Uh, but I would almost, you know, I, I can't say I would prefer it. I didn't have it. But I'd almost rather he hit me or got angry at me or did something. Uh, than, than what I had, which was him living in my home and me not knowing him or sensing love from him. I got really mad at him, especially in high school. He kept moving us around. He was a pastor. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And so we kept moving, you know, uh, every two or three years to different churches. And I, you know, finally had uh, gotten to a place where I'd done high school for most of my high school years. And, and he moved me my senior year of high school, and I lost it. I just went bonkers on him and said things that I... Uh, still regret to this day. Makes me mad that I said him. Uh, he let me go home, uh, back to where I was living before he moved, and us, and, and uh, I finished my senior year and went to college. I got married, my smoking hot wife, Eleanor, and, and uh, we started our you know, lives together. And uh, uh, actually went and worked on the same church staff as my dad. He was an associate pastor uh, in, in my first stop in ministry. I was a youth pastor. And so uh, I spent more time with my dad ever than my whole life because I worked on the same team with him. I still didn't talk to him, still didn't have a relationship with him. And I remember sitting in my office on some days and just being angry, talking to God and being like, what a crock, what a loser. 
And that guy's a pastor of this church. He's been a pastor for 30 years. He doesn't even talk to his own son. What a bozo. One particular day, I was praying, journaling in my prayer journal. and I was kind of hitting those finer points, and God's uh, Holy Spirit just kind of uh, stopped my pen. He said, hey, Mark, are we going to keep doing this? Are you just going to keep bad-mouthing your father to me? How about we do this? How about we think about how you bring your mess to this relationship? Never occurred to me. I mean, I'm the son. I was the kid. I was the innocent victim in this loveless father-son relationship. But then he started kind of taking the me phone out before me phones or even iPhones or iPhones or even me phones or whatever. And he just started showing me, yeah, no, you did this. And, and you haven't pursued him. You're, you're a grown-up now. You're as much to blame for what's happening or not happening in your relationship with dad as he is. So I went down, I gotta do this faster, but I went down to his office that day. I sat down in his office and uh, he, he didn't really look up. He was one of those dads. He worked like 80, 85 hours a week. Uh, you know, uh, he was just a hardworking guy. And so if you had something to say, get it out because, you know, I got stuff to do. And uh, I said, dad, put your pen down. It was before computers. Put your pen down. And I sat down across from my dad in his church office and I, I said these words. I said, Dad, listen, it's come to my attention that, um, well, I started with saying, you know, uh, we're not great friends. We're father and son, but we're not. And it's come to my intention that that's probably a lot on me. And so I confessed these things to him, and I just started walking through the ways that I'd not been the best son to my dad. And I said, now, to be fair, you know, I think there's ways that maybe you could have been a dad, you know, to me differently. But I'm not here to talk about those. I just want to confess to you my stuff. And I want to let you know, um, today, for the first time, I've forgiven the things that have happened in our relationship that you were the cause of. And I would pray that today you would forgive me of these things that I've said to you. And that's it. And as was our relationship, he just kind of looked at me and he said, Okay. Not like a dismissive okay. Like he heard me. But okay. And I was like, all right, I got up. I walked out of the office. But here's, here's why I tell you the story. I hit the door, turned the corner, and in my relationship with my father, I was a different guy. I've always been a thicker male. But that day I was light as I walked down the, st the hallway to my office. I just felt the burden, the, the weight of the brokenness of our relationship just lift. I wish I could tell you that after that we went fishing and went to ball games and everything was awesome. and uh, Not a whole lot categorically changed in my relationship with my dad, but my heart changed towards him. How I thought about him changed and I'm grateful to God for that. And the result or how that came about was the, the grace of God and God pointing out my mess and what I brought to the relationship. Listen, some of you need to go home and have conversations today that aren't centered on the same old stuff, same old rhetoric, it's your this, you do that, you do this, if you would just change that. Start your conversations instead of saying you need, stay, say I need. Instead of saying, you always say, you know what, I always. 
Confess your sins one to another. Go to battle with the stuff that stands between you and the ones that you love. Uh, real quick, I want to just talk to you about meekness, and I'll let you go home. Meekness uh, is basically uh, choosing to be weak, strong. It says there in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, heard this one before. It was a big thing in Charles Barkley commercials back in the 2000s, and probably the best known of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Another paradox, the meek typically don't inherit anything. They're the losers. They lose everything. Uh, but Jesus is saying here, no, no, no. The true inheritors of the earth are those who choose to be weak, strong. Here, here's why I say weak, strong. A lot of times people hear about meekness and they think, well, meekness is weakness. And they don't like it. They don't want to be weak, especially in the culture that we live in. You know, it's dog eat dog, every man for himself, right? Uh, weakness is not meekness. Weakness is just basically a fact of life. Under a, a bench press with 400 pounds in it, most of us in here aren't moving it. That's weakness. But meekness is being able to move that bar and choosing not to. Put it another way. Used to have wrestling matches with my kids. Come home after work and, you know, two of them would grab my legs, you know, and I'd do the kid stomp down the hallway and the other one would be, you know, trying to tickle me or whatever. We'd get to the living room floor and I'd lay down in these, you know, two, three, four-year-olds, three, four, five-year-olds, whatever they were. Our kids were little at the time. They would have a coordinated, you know, royal rumble with their dad. And the boys would try to pin my arms, and then Kai would always fly off the couch with knees first into my sternum. That was her move. <clears throat> but I would let him do it. Big burly me getting pinned by four and five year old Ben. Watching as my daughter flies the terror that she was off the cushions of our couch. I got bruises from those fights. Eleanor would usually stop them by saying, it's time for dinner, get in here. And at the end of those wrestling rumbles, I would grab all three of them in my arms and I'd squeeze them all real tight. Mm, Daddy loves you, and then we'd go eat dinner. And that last move was my only move. Just some love and a hug. I, I never won any of those fights. But whose choice was that? Because you got to know, even today, if those three came at me and it was for real, I'm going to win. That, I'm, you know, <laughs> They can get all huge and big, and they are. They're huge and big, but they're going down. That's just how, you know. Back then especially, in that situation, I was practicing this thing called meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness isn't just being passive. Meekness isn't just being nice. Meek meekness is the simple humility and gentleness that we're supposed to have in relationships. It's this is the big one. It's refusing to invoke my rights for the sake of loving those around me. It's setting self aside and choosing to love instead. Another way of putting it is the life lived waiting on God to do as he sees best in my life with those around me. And in fact, I think Jesus probably drew this blessing from something that he'd read or he knew that the people listening to him read in Psalms chapter 37. It says this, uh, refrain from anger. I'll keep going, yeah. Those are pretty pictures I don't have time to tell you about. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. That's, that's, that's enough to preach right there. We, we'll take that another day, but that's a great verse. 
But he goes on and he says, uh, David says in this wisdom psalm, for the evildoers shall be cut off. Get this. But those who wait for the Lord shall what? Hang on. That sounds really familiar. Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the land. So another way of understanding this meekness is this waiting, this dependence on Jesus. That's why Jesus says later on in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, keep going, he says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Who's heard this one before? If anyone forces you, or excuse me, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. You want my, my T-shirt? <laughs> take my jacket. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Who's struggled with those verses before? Because if you slap me in the cheek, I'm going to slap you in both of yours. That's my first reaction. <laughs> if you take my stuff, I'm going to take all your stuff. That's my heart. That's my sin. But Jesus says, no. When you're wronged, turn your cheek. When you have the opportunity to invoke your entitlements, set them aside. Because that's the only way that you can inherit the earth. Now, inheriting the earth as this future uh, this not yet, but already significance to it again, and I'll finish with this. If you're going to inherit the earth, like, like in heaven, did you know the Bible tells us that we're going to reign with Christ? Like we are joint heirs with Jesus. That means that we inherit with Jesus all things. And so I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what the polity is or how the political thing will be set up, but, but we're going to reign. We're going to be like princes and princesses. We're going to be in the kingdom reigning with Christ. It's going to be pretty cool. We, we, we will literally inherit the earth. That's our future. What does it mean in today's world for us to inherit the earth? Well, scholars have debated this, and the, 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 the idea that I like best is that inheriting the earth means inheriting peace in your life while you're on the earth. It's, it's learning life and being contented with it. Understanding that, that, that I deserve nothing. That's poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, I'm empty. I got nothing. I deserve nothing. Uh, mourning, I, 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 my sin is, is horrible and I, I want a war against it. it. It emotionally connects me. But then meekness is this action attitude. It's this life lived in the spirit of being poor in the spirit and mourning. It's this choice to basically say, you know what? Whatever I get, whatever God grants me, I don't deserve. And it's gravy. I'm content regardless of my circumstances. Meekness breeds that. If you, listen, when you invoke self, you're resurrecting someone who's supposed to be dead. Remember what it says in Galatians, that you and I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. When you say, I deserve, I'm entitled, not fair, you're basically resurrecting from the grave someone who's not supposed to be alive. But when you say, you know what, you first. You ahead of me. Let me serve you in my family, in my marriage, in my home. When you say that, guess what comes? Not just to your life, but to the life of the family. Eventually, over time, by God's grace, contentment, peace.
peace. That's my prayer for us all. That God would rule in our homes. That he'd show us that we're empty and we need him. That he'd, he'd make us viscerally connect with our sin and we'd go war to war against it with him and that we would understand that our greatest family, our greatest relationships, they come as the result of us setting self aside, of letting God fight our battles for us and trusting him to win the day. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for your word and the chance to go over it together this morning. And I pray that you'd lead us to these things that I've talked about, that you talked about uh, through me, I trust. I, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, in our marriages, uh, in our relationships, in our homes, to, uh, to put you first in our hearts, uh, that you would restore us so that we can restore what's broken in our homes, uh, that you'd lead us, God, to dependence on you, and that you'd bring all of those blessings, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that you would comfort us and provide for us uh, in the wake of our sin, that you would lead us, God, to inheriting this earth, to having contentment with what, with what you give us in life. Grant us those things, I pray. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Everybody said...